Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to acknowledge conventions such as WeedonCon. WeedonCon is a fan-generated charity event for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Firefly, and all Joss Whedon creations. It is scheduled for October of 2020 and is held in Los Angeles, California. Portion of the proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center as well as the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship. See details at WeedonCon.com. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Aaron Bossig. Today we're talking with Rod Faulkner, the webmaster and podcaster from The Seventh Matrix. And Rod and I are going to talk webmaster to webmaster about a lot of great sci-fi projects. So I'm going to give you a hint that you may want to go right now to my website, www.aaronbossig.com, and pull up the show notes for this episode because we're going to talk about a lot of projects, and I guarantee you don't know about all of them. There's going to be links to everything right there. Let's get started. On mic today, we have Rod Faulkner. How have you been, buddy? Oh, I've been well, Aaron, and yourself. I am doing great. Um, Now, for the benefit of some of my listeners, you are the blogger at The Seventh Matrix and a podcaster as well from Ion Sci-Fi. That is correct. And I had the the benefit of being on your show this time last year, and I had a great time. So let's let's let me return the favor, please, because I, I would desperately <laughs> like, like to do that. Yeah, I'm so glad that we're able to to speak again. Yeah. Now, I mean, I'll, I will tell you when I go and talk to people from the community, a lot of them haven't heard of your blog, but the second I show it to them, their reaction is, "Oh my God, where has this been all my life?" <laughs> so I, you are a hidden treasure, and I'm hoping to unhide you a little bit here. Well, thank you. I, I've been working to try and get more exposure for the blog and the podcast, so I do appreciate that. So tell me a little bit about why you do this and what you get out of it. Oh, sure. Well, I am a lifelong science fiction and fantasy fan. Um, I've always loved most nerdy things like comic books I've always loved science fiction, I've always loved fantasy, and I've loved the genre and all the media that you could consume it. So I'm an avid reader, I've watched television shows, I go to movies, and I started The Seventh Matrix back in 2013 because a colleague of mine at the time, he had a sci-fi podcast. And so we would kind of get together and discuss some of the news items that he would cover. And at that time, I would go on YouTube and Vimeo, and I would find these science fiction short films that nobody was talking about that were really well done. And one day he said to me, he said, you know, Rod, you need to start a website and start sharing all of these films and Mm -hmm. web series that you're finding. And I remember thinking, you know what, that sounds like a great idea. And so that's how The Seventh Matrix was born. And what I love about it is that it really feels like a 21st century version of those classic science fiction magazines that were popular for decades and are still around, and I love them dearly. But, you know, when you get an Asimov's or an analog and you can read some crazy short story by somebody who's never been published before, this is the digital version of that. Right. Well, I'm very, very flattered that you compared me to such iconic periodicals because I read many of those when I was a child, mm-hmm. and I'm glad many of them are still around. But I'm just a guy that that is 
a nerdy guy, blurdy guy, mm-hmm. and I've always loved this. And I know that there are other fans out there who would enjoy the content that I discover and share on the site. And mm-hmm. then I launched the Iron Sci-Fi podcast just as a natural extension of the mission of the main website to do that. So what kind of feedback have you had so far, aside from mine, because I, I know what I think Most people have been very kind, and what's really taken me aback, when I started the podcast, I thought I would just do reviews of the short films and the web series and the other content that I feature on The Seventh Matrix. But a lot of independent filmmakers started contacting me saying, hey, we would love for you to either watch this and maybe would you consider featuring it on The Seventh Matrix or could you have us on the show? So I didn't intend on being an interviewer, but the Iron Sci-Fi podcast has turned into a podcast where we do have many conversations with some very talented and fascinating. So when you're talking with these people and you have a brand new content creator come on there What's their feeling that they're actually talking to somebody who's taking their work seriously and giving them a chance to to get it out to the world from somebody who's going to appreciate it in the first place? Well, I can't speak for anyone, but the feedback that they give me is that they do appreciate me giving them an additional platform in order to promote their work. And most of the filmmakers are very kind and generous and And they say that they appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate having the opportunity to speak to them because I know that my listeners learn a lot, uh, especially about what goes into independent genre filmmaking. And I learn a lot as well. So it's a two way street. I get a lot out of it and I hope that they do, too. And that's the feedback that I've been getting. And I'm still getting independent filmmakers contacting me. So by that feedback, I'm hoping that I'm doing something right. I just think it's amazing that, you know, a hundred years ago, it was new that you could sit, any person could sit down with a typewriter and and write a story that could be published worldwide. And now we're giving that same ability to create entire movies, video games, TV shows. One person with some cheap tools and a little free time can do that. It's amazing. Aaron, I can't tell you how many short films that I've covered on The Seventh Matrix that the filmmaker said, oh, you know, we had a very limited budget or no budget, but they look fantastic. They tell very interesting and compelling stories. Mm -hmm. And the acting is pretty top notch as well. It is phenomenal, as you say, with the technology that is available that in the hands of a determined and passionate filmmaker, the stories that they can create. And Mm -hmm. the fan community needs to see those. And I'm hoping that I'm achieving that mission with the website and the podcast. I love the fact that you use the word mission when it comes to your podcast, because you've used it in conjunction with my podcast too. And that's a very specific word that carries a lot of weight to it. Right. That that's a, right. when you're saying it's a mission. You are tasking yourself. You are trying to accomplish something. Um, I generally steer away from the term content creator because that's that seems like it's a you're creating a product. You're creating something for people to use, and and, and you are, but you're cre- you want to do something with it. That's that's right. valuable. Well, thank you, and I do agree with that. And I consider myself more as a conduit. I am 
sharing mm-hmm. this work that's already exist, hopefully and connecting this work with audiences that will appreciate it and value it. And I really am passionate about that because filmmaking period is hard, but these independent filmmakers, many don't have access to the resources that a Hollywood studio or a network or any other type of broadcast entity can give them, like a Netflix or an ABC or NBC. So mm-hmm. they're creating this work, but the most difficult part of it is in getting the word out there that it's here. And so, you know, if I can play any small part in facilitating that, then I think I'm a success. And that's what continues to motivate me mm-hmm. to do the work that I do. Let's look at this 10, 15 years down the road when, you know, because we're going through this big transition now. You mentioned the ABCs and the CBSs and um, to a lesser extent, Netflix. They're, they're sure. the content gatekeepers. They're, they're creating the shows. When we get to a point where so many customers are saying, this is the content I want and I'm going to buy it directly. And so many creators are saying, this is what I'm going to make and I'm going to sell it directly to the people who want it. What's that work right. going to look like? Wow, I'm no Nostradamus, but I think what's going to happen is that we're going to have very niche platforms. It's already happening now. There are a lot of streaming services for individuals who just love documentaries, who love foreign films, who love classic films. Um, There are some streaming platforms that focus on speculative genres, and I think we're going to see a narrowing of that, of people who say, you know what, I don't like sports, or I do like sports, or I love sci-fi, or I love maybe historical dramas. Mm -hmm. And I believe that there may be a platform specifically for those interests, that people can get the kind of content for lack of a better word, that they're interested in. At least that's my prediction. I think you're on a good solid track there because obviously the the paid for streaming platforms are doing well for themselves. And that's, that's, to put it mildly, (laughs) but I I, I definitely see that there's there's a a concern on the part of the the old guard media that they might not have the, the handle on things they had for the past almost century. Right. Well, things are changing. And I'm sure that when the printing press was invented, you know, the people who were tasked with copying by hand all of the written word at that time, they were concerned about the printing press. And the same with any technological change. For instance, the horse and buggy, and then here comes the Mm -hmm. automobile. I think, though, that the networks are finally beginning to take what's happening in terms of how we consumers consume our media very seriously with the humongous success of Netflix. Netflix really, I have to give them credit, they saw the potential of streaming media when no one else did, and they invested heavily in that, and they have Mm -hmm. such a head, um, such a... um, What's the word I'm looking for? They have such a lead when mm-hmm. all the other broadcasters are catching up. Now you have Peacock from NBC and Disney Plus, and but they really were the forerunners of that. And I think that the old guard is just going to have to understand. Well, here's an example. There is this big controversy about theatrical releases of films. And some filmmakers um, and some power movers in Hollywood think, oh, well, you know, if a movie doesn't have a theatrical release, it's not a film. But that's not true. People are now used to seeing films via a Netflix. Mm -hmm. And 
I think there will always be a place for going to see films at a theater, that communal experience. But I tell you what, the exhibitors are going to have to start really upping their game because the mm-hmm. film going experience for most people, A, is too expensive, B, is unpleasant. You have to deal with unruly other patrons. You have to deal with the cost. You have to deal with parking. So even with the pandemic not hitting us at the time, people were already deciding, you know what, I'll pay 20 bucks to see the latest Mission Impossible from the comfort of my home because of the advances, again, with technology in big screen televisions and sound systems. And they can have a family viewing or an individual viewing of a favorite film and not have to deal with the hassle of going to a theater. So the exhibitors are going to have to stop, in my personal opinion, pointing fingers and really take a look at their business and decide what can we do to make the theater-going experience pleasurable again for our patrons. Mm -hmm. And to go back to your point about content narrowing and getting very specific about the, the type of content people are accessing, okay, we both talk genre fiction a lot. Taking a step to the side, I'm also a big fan of comedy, of general cinematic comedy, comedies like Crocodile Dundee, comedies like Clue, like A Fish Called Wanda. And I'm not naming any movies made in the last 20 years, and there's a reason for that, is that Hollywood has gotten afraid of making cheap comedies that are actually funny. Everything's an Avengers, everything's a Star Wars, and I love those movies. But when that's the only thing I can really choose from going to a theater, maybe I don't want to go to the theater anymore. Exactly. Hollywood is it is a business. The bottom line. Yes, it's there to entertain us. But with the success of blockbusters, the studios are concerned with finding the next intellectual property to build a franchise around. So you're right, you don't have the comedy or you don't have the mid-budget rom-coms anymore mm-hmm. um, that used to be so popular. They're just, they don't have a home. And that's where Netflix and all the other streaming platforms have seen a need and have stepped in to fill that need. Are you familiar with Tanya Atomic? I'm not. Okay, you need to be. Uh, she's been on the show already. <laughs> She is into genre fiction, but she's okay. also into a lot of other types of material that would definitely appeal to you. And I, I can't recommend her highly enough. But, but the point I'm making is uh, she sent me a movie of hers called Plain Devils, which okay. was hilarious and in a way that I haven't seen in years. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, but, and, and she is distributing it independently through okay. some small time. And I think there's she's trying to get it on Amazon now. I don't know if it's there yet, so don't quote me on that. But it's it's heading in that direction. And this is, this is saving those types of movies that aren't popular elsewhere or don't have a market elsewhere. Right, right. I interviewed a British filmmaker. Um, his name escapes me at the moment, but it was earlier this year. And he made this action film sci-fi kind of sci-fi film because it's dystopian is set in the future in England and he spent 10 years off and on making this film and he finally completed it and he said he had such a difficult time finding a distributor no one wanted it because they thought that it was too niche 
for their platforms. And it's a film that harkens back to those classic 80s action movies. Mm-hmm. Like Escape from New York would be mm-hmm. a good analog for this film. And so finally he found a home on Amazon and he said that, you know, I won't make profit on it, but at least I'll recoup some of the resources that I invested in this so that I can continue to make other films. So I agree, as you say, Amazon, Prime Video, Netflix, they really are saving graces for a lot of independent filmmakers who really just want their movies shown. Yeah. They don't have the luxury of being in a lofty position and breathing that lofty air like a Spielberg or a Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. And you're getting, in that case... A movie that's made by one person or a very small group of people who work extremely well together, the labor of love aspect comes out a lot more clearly than it does in an Avengers or a Star Wars where there are boardrooms making these. And I'm not trying to be down on those movies because I love (laughs) them for what they are. But there's a huge difference between The Rise of Skywalker and The Empire Strikes Back in terms of where it came from. Right. And also, too, I'm going to throw in another factor for me that's very important. And another reason why I love what I do is that, unfortunately, there is still a lack of representation of black people and other marginalized groups in Mm -hmm. Hollywood, aside from the typical, very negative stereotyping that you Mm -hmm. see. It's gotten better, but there is still so much more improvement. Because, what, there were 18 Marvel films before we got Black Panther? Mm -hmm. So there's still a lot of work to be done, but in the independent film space, there are projects that are being produced by filmmakers who wouldn't have the opportunity in mainstream media to have their work shown or even greenlit. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to me to, to try and shine a light on these filmmakers. And that's that is huge too, and this is something um, I'm hoping that you can you can speak to because I'm obviously not really able to speak to that point, the inclusivity angle. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, now I'm looking at this and I'm saying, man, I love Black Panther. Black Panther mm-hmm. was a fantastic movie. It's probably in my top five Marvel movies, probably top three if I'm really thinking about it. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, it took them that long to make that, and we've had. How many Batman movies in the meantime? Exactly. How many Batman movies were good? Yeah, and and I and and that that annoys me. It's like you you spent all that time and you came up with a shit movie, and you crank out one Black Panther and you knocked it out of the park. Okay, somebody's not making the right decisions here. Exactly, and you know it happened. I'm hoping that this movement of inclusivity in Hollywood is different, but we've seen it before. There was a wave in the 90s of films, black cinema, that were very successful, but then it kind of abated. Mm -hmm. And though still, I have to admit, and I'll be frank here, and this is just my opinion, racist notions about films that center black people, that they're real niche, that they don't travel well overseas, and it's difficult to sell, and, and Black Panther destroyed all of that because I I remember I watched a couple of YouTubers who happened to be white who review movies. And this is before Black Panther came out. And they said the sentiments I heard were, oh, well, it's a Marvel movie, so it might make $500 million. 
um, it might do okay. We it, we don't know really. One guy said, I don't know who was the movie for. Is there an audience for that? And I'm sitting here thinking, are you kidding me? And they were being serious. Mm-hmm. Then when Black Panther was announced and Ryan Coogler was announced as the director, Black Panther trended on Twitter two years before the movie came out. So these guys saying, who is the movie for? Would it really be a demand for it? And we hope it's good. Then they are so shocked when it broke all these records. Oh my God, we can't believe it. And I'm thinking, what universe are you all living in? It's such a pent-up demand. And I've always been insulted, pissed off at Hollywood and galled at the fact that it's like you're leaving money on the table. There's so mm-hmm. many stories to be told. So I don't know what's going to really crack the ceiling. Maybe Black Panther will, but I- I'm just hoping that we see more movies mm-hmm. about Black people and other marginalized groups, not just African Americans, not just Black people, but the disabled. There is a short film called Dawn of the Deaf that I covered a couple of years ago on the Seventh Matrix is still there. Dawn mm-hmm. of the Deaf. And it literally is about the zombie apocalypse. But what creates the apocalypse is there is this audible tone that is broadcast across the globe. No one knows where it originated from, but anyone who hears it is instantly killed. And the only people who are not affected are the deaf. Mm-hmm. So it centers deaf protagonists, and it's in, it was made in Britain, so it features British Sign Language, but I thought that is ingenious, and just how you thought you've seen every possible iteration of the zombie narrative, here's something that you've never seen before that is fresh and unique, and I typically am not a big fan of horror, but this was brilliant. So you find films like that in the independent film space. And that's, that is huge. Um, and, and the fact that I've seen, for example, on, on The Seventh Matrix, movie, uh, short films about not just people of color, not just superheroes, but actually people creating their own characters or people making fan films of those characters because Hollywood won't do it. Exactly. Exactly. And these filmmakers are realizing that Back again to your point with the technology that is available to all of us, they can go and create a pretty damn good looking film and they can create their own. Well, I always encourage filmmakers to I love fan films, but, Mm -hmm. you know, to avoid any legality, uh, any legal problems, just create your own intellectual property that you control. And many are doing that. So, yeah, you're seeing a lot of exciting work that's being done, and they're now starting to gain some notice. There is a um, YouTube short film exhibitor called Dust that uh, is from the studio Gunpowder and Sky out of Hollywood, and they now feature these independent short science fiction films, many that we featured on The Seventh Matrix. So it's giving these filmmakers more exposure, and I'm all for that. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I, I really see your point with the, the fan films and whatnot, because it seems like you're, you're limiting yourself because there's a ceiling on how popular your film can get before that hammer cracks down on you, and why subject yourself to that? Right, right. And then in, in it's... 
if you create and produce your own intellectual property, you control it, just mm-hmm. like Lucas did with Star Wars. So you can, the sky's the limit. You can do anything with it. You can go anywhere with it. You're really constrained when you're dealing with another person's intellectual property. So just tread very carefully if you do that. There are certain restrictions. Make sure that if you do want to make a fan film, that's fine, but contact a studio or the individual that owns that property and make sure that you're following their guidelines. Some people don't care, some people do, and they have a lot of restrictions, and some don't. So definitely just be wary when you do that, and if you want to do it, have fun. So is there any particular projects that you're looking forward to right now that you're keeping an eye on? Not right now. Uh, I did recently do an interview with... Um, the creators of a short film called Crossover Point that is brilliant. It is about a physicist that discovers an alternate Earth. And the way that the filmmakers shot the short film, it incorporates our new reality. Like we're on a video call. It's two protagonists that are on a video call. And that's how the story is actually told using that conceit. And it's really brilliant because it's the only short film that I know of that has been produced and released during the pandemic lockdown. And the gentleman who wrote it, Anthony Johnston, is a very accomplished and prolific writer. As a matter of fact, his graphic novel, The Coda City, was adapted into Atomic Blonde starring Charlize Theron. Oh and he also... Yeah, he also wrote uh, part of the script for the original Dead Space survival horror game. So, you know, very distinguished pedigree with this short film. So I encourage everyone to check it out at the Seventh Matrix. It's called Crossover Point. And I had the opportunity to interview Mr. Johnston and one of the stars, Casey McKinnon, on the podcast. And it was a great conversation. I'm going to try to make sure I get as much of this as I can into the show notes because we're talking about a lot of great stuff, and I hope that people are going to be able to get right to that. Yeah, I hope so, too. I mean, when we're talking about where – I mean, do you think this is probably the best time in history for people to be a fan of the things we're into? Absolutely. <laughs> No question. If you had asked me as a teenager growing up in the mid 80s that Marvel and DC would be producing blockbuster major motion pictures based on their superhero pantheon, I wouldn't have believed it. I mean, sure, we had Christopher Reeve's Superman, but that was kind of considered an outlier. But mm-hmm. now just seeing that and then also seeing all of the work on Netflix that you can find. If you're a genre fan, especially, yeah, this is a new golden golden era. And I think that uh, we should be thankful for it and definitely indulge in it. Yeah, and DC and Marvel are just great examples in general. Marvel, with a few weird exceptions, really didn't do movies until the 21st century. Right. DC... They had their Superman, then they had their run of Batman, and then it was like they immediately ran everything into the ground with a few really, really bad choices. Is that? Yeah. I mean, they they had the the fourth Batman movie with George Clooney, then Catwoman, <laughs> then Steel, and it was like those like they just said, "Whoa, we this this gravy train is done. We got to stop." And right, that <laughs> it, it didn't but happen. I think- 
I think these things are cyclical, Aaron, because yeah. you know, for a while there, Marvel wasn't in the major motion picture business really at all, except right. for Blade uh, with Wesley Snipes. Okay, you had the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, which I really love those first two Spider-Man films of his. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had Fox's X-Men movies, but they really weren't concerned with mining those characters to put them on the big screen until, as you say, the 21st century. And DC was, of course, in decline at that time, but they're starting to show signs of life. Now, Mm -hmm. I personally liked Man of Steel. I think a lot of the criticisms against it are unfair. Yes, it was a bit dark, but I think Henry Cavill is great as Superman, and I enjoyed the story for what it was. It realistically showed to me, what would happen if Superman were battling beings of his same power level and beings that didn't care about human life. So a lot of the criticisms about that I disagreed with, but with Wonder Woman, with Shazam, with the surprising success of Aquaman that everyone laughed at, everything is in cycle. So I think that they're, and Joker, I almost forgot about that. So I think that they're kind of finding their way back again into the public's good graces. So as I said before, everything is cyclical. I agree with you on Man of Steel. I like that movie a lot. I have a few very significant complaints, but they are- It's not perfect. It's not perfect, (laughs) but it's damn good. I think yes. Uh, Thank what, you. what what came after that? Those are different. That's a different conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I really think DC's major major mistake was that they tried to make these artificial distinctions between the versions of their characters when they wanted to make their universe. They said, well, the Ben Affleck Batman and the uh, 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 Christian Bale Batman are two different people, and the audience is like, why? And the TV Flash and the movie Flash, they're two different people. And then the audience is like, why? They, they made so many rules for themselves that didn't make any sense, and they suffered badly because of it. They made movies that didn't need to be made just to get around their own rules, and that really killed them. And I also think, too, in addition to that, they really tried to duplicate the way that Marvel was producing their films by Mm -hmm. having a shared universe. Mm -hmm. And I really think that if they just focused on their core characters, Mm -hmm. took their time and not worried about trying to make their their cinematic universe interconnected, that they wouldn't have made the many missteps that they did make. So I think it was just a confluence of, of all of those different factors and more that they really kind of hurt them but i think they're now finding their footing because i thoroughly i didn't think i would like shazam and shazam was one of my favorite superheroes um i don't read most mainstream big two comic books now but i still enjoy shazam and i really enjoyed that movie i loved wonder woman i thought it was great and i saw aquaman and it was really terrific and visually it was an accomplishment because i thought how are they going to do this and i think that they pulled it off so let me play with that idea for a minute here let's imagine it was 1990 and we just had one batman movie and four superman movies and you heard that they were going to have a world's finest movie starring michael keaton and christopher reeves would you find that interesting compelling believable yes absolutely and i was really i was still in college um, preparing to graduate in 1990. So 
I collected comic books like a madman at that mm-hmm. time. And I would have been over the moon at that prospect of okay. seeing such a film, especially with Keaton and Christopher Reeve. Oh, they couldn't have taken my money fast enough. <laughs> I, I, and that would be my point is that if you had just taken these two movies, which nobody ever planned to put together and just put them together without feeling the need to make pageantry of it, I think right. that would have worked in 90. It would have worked in 2020. It it, it yes. didn't have to be this convoluted mess that they made it into. I think they were rushed. I think they were trying to ape Marvel's cinematic blueprint, which was a mistake. And mm-hmm. hopefully maybe they've learned from that going forward. So all we can do is, is see. Time will tell. Yeah, in, indeed. And and we've been wrong before. Yeah. I know I have. I'm an expert at being wrong. Many times. <laughs> <laughs> many, many times. So what you're saying you're not reading a lot of big two comics now. What are you into, though? Um, I am really reading a lot of I used to read mainly fantasy. I'm reading a bit more science fiction, but I'm really focusing on reading works by uh, minority authors. Mm -hmm. Like one of my favorite series that I'm reading now is the first book that came out uh, is from a young woman named Tomi Adeyemi. And the first book is called The Children of Blood and Bone. It is an epic fantasy, and it's based on West African traditions and mm-hmm. the Orish, which is the African pantheon of gods. Mm-hmm. If you love grand fantasies, you need to check this out. And then I there's will. another one called The Rage of Dragons by Evan Winter. And he is also an author who what inspired him to write his fantasy was that he has a son. And he said, you know, I love Game of Thrones and I love Lord of the Rings, but I wanted my son to have a grand fantasy in that tradition, but Mm -hmm. centering people that looked like him. And it's his debut novel and it is terrific. So to any of your listeners and viewers out there who love fantasy and they want something different, um, because I started finding a lot of grand fantasies to be kind of rote. You know, they mostly are based on medieval European archetypes and the same chosen one narrative. And I really mm-hmm. was I really do seek out something different. And so those two books fit the bill. Are you familiar with Todd Sullivan? I, I am not. OK, again, somebody who's been on the show. Uh, he is a black actor, a uh, black author was born in America, currently living in Korea. And okay. he wrote, yeah, so he's got a very broad spectrum of experiences and he incorporates all of them into his work. His books. Yeah, and, and you're going to see, I mean, I, I when you're reading this, it reads like Lord of the Rings, it reads like Tolkien, but there is a very strong, not Western world aspect to it. You're definitely seeing, oh. this is what Lord of the Rings would have been like written in Asia. Okay. And, and he's got that because he's not originally Asian. He's looking at it from the outside saying, here's – I would strongly recommend his works as well. Okay. And then I don't know if you've heard of her or not. You may have – I'm sure you have. She won the Hugo Award back-to-back. But any book by N.K. Jemison, mm-hmm. any book. N.K. Jemison. She is brilliant. She won the Hugo Award for her Broken Earth trilogy. So if you want to check that out, um, she also wrote a trilogy called The Hundred. 
Uh, yeah, the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, I believe, is what it's called. But N.K. Jemison, she is brilliant, and she brings a totally fresh perspective to fantasy. And I think that's what the genre really needs right now. It's this infusion mm-hmm. of fresh ideas and perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody looks at fantasy with good reason, and they say Tolkien, Tolkien, and more recently. George R. R. Martin. It's like, and those are the guys, and they have they are the guys for a reason, but it's like they created fantasy. Well, no. The Greeks, <laughs> the Egyptians, the Norse, right. the Chinese did this three thousand years ago. Years ago. Yeah. And and I really think if you look at that is the original, original fantasy. But yeah, um, like I said, th- this mythology is the core of fantasy so if you're running out yes. of material and you want to go back to the source go back five thousand years i right. mean we, right. I, we, we can go all the way back to gilgamesh if we try hard enough and it, i think okay i don't think i've ever said this on this show so i want you to be the first to play with this idea okay is that you look at gilgamesh you look at agamemnon you look at the first literally the first recorded written works in human history were science fiction. They were fantasy. They were not somebody loves somebody or these are my tax documents. They Somebody said, I want to write a story about something that can't happen. And I don't think we would bother telling stories if we had to stick with stuff that could actually happen. Right, right. I, I agree with you. And I never thought about that, but that is correct. These are stories that involve fantastical elements mm-hmm. and mystery and a lot of drama. So, yes, speculative fiction has been around for, I think, as you say, as long as we've had storytelling traditions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, publishers don't even have to work that hard. There are so many authors out there from so many different backgrounds and cultures Mm -hmm. that are producing great work. All they have to do is just kind of open up their mindset and take a look at these works. And I think the readers will enjoy them too, because when you're reading a story that's told from a perspective that you're not familiar with, and it's in the vein of a genre that you love, that's, for me, it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I, uh, I would strongly encourage somebody who's wanting to publish a book, they're an author, they've got a fresh perspective, if they want to publish a book, absolutely fish it out to the big publishing companies, try to find an agent. Do that. But if that doesn't pan out for you or you get impatient, do not hesitate to make a PDF, sell it to Amazon and get right to the people because those people are ready to go right now. Don't wait for somebody exactly. else's permission to tell your story. Well, to your point, I have to admit this. Um, I mean, I have to uh, to to divulge this, but and it's not a secret, but Evan Winter, who I mentioned earlier, who wrote The Rage of Dragons, that's how he was, I guess, quote-unquote, discovered. He self-published A Rage of Dragons first, Mm -hmm. and then Orbit Books, because it became so popular. He had a Reddit thread and garnered a lot of fans that way. And that's how I found out about the book, and I bought the self-published version. And Mm -hmm. then Orbit Books bought the rights to it and republished it. So yeah, if you are um, an aspiring author or you are an author and you're really frustrated with trying to go to conventional means to get your work published, as you say, self-publish it. What do you have to lose? Exactly. You never, ever know. No. And the the main idea is that the fear, I guess, is if you self-publish and then the 
publishing house looks at you and says, wow, well, we'd love to publish your book, but it's been self-published and we just don't have that lock on it anymore. That, that's not going to happen because if they're looking at you in the first place, they see dollar signs. They see more yes. people buying your book. The conversation's not going to be had if they think you're used up. Yes, exactly. So I encourage everyone, if you have a story that you're dying to tell, whether it be a novel or whether it be a film or whether it be a podcast, go out and create it. Just make that leap. You never, ever know. No, absolutely not. And uh, so much has happened in just the first few years, in the last few years because of it. Um, you said <laughs> you started your, your, your blog in 2013, was it? Right. And then I started the Iron Sci-Fi podcast in 2018. Okay. When did you first discover podcasts? Oh, I've been listening to podcasts since 2008. Okay. There is a podcaster and I recommend him to you. He's great. And I consider him a mentor. We've actually gotten to know each other virtually and I consider him a mentor, but his podcast is called Sci-Fi Talk. And the gentleman that founded the podcast and hosts it is Tony Tolado. And he's been podcasting since they didn't even know what to call podcasting for mm -hmm. that long. And what I like about it is that he focuses on science fiction and fantasy, but he interviews not only actors and people in front of the screen, but he interviews screenwriters, authors, composers, visual and special effects artists, a special creature makeup effects artist, just anyone that's involved in the process of creating genre work in any medium, he will have them on his podcast. And he's got so many episodes in archive and he's still podcasting to this day. And I started with him and I've been kind of hooked on podcasts ever since. Very similar. You and I found podcasts at about the same time then, because I remember I the Christmas of 2007, I got a new iPod, and that was when I got into the, pr the process big time. And yeah. we've seen Down so many rabbit changes. Hole. Yeah. I, I remember there was a time when video podcasts were a big thing. Just before YouTube really got its feet, video podcasts yes. were huge. Yes. yes. And, uh, we've kind of gotten to the point now where podcasts are an audio-only thing, and that's has its pluses and minuses. But uh, the good thing is we're seeing that a refining of the, the process, a refining of the art form, and we're finding ways to fit people's lives. Yes, absolutely. And what I like about it, too, is that the technology that we have has not only democratized filmmaking, as we discussed earlier, but mm -hmm. also podcasting as well. You know, I was very nervous about starting a podcast because I'll be quite honest with you. I don't like the sound of my own voice. Mm -hmm. So... I thought, uh, do I really want to do this? Because the people I listen to sound so polished and professional. But I thought, I love what I do. And I think that this will be a great extension of, again, the mission of The Seventh Matrix is to do this podcast. And I'm so glad that I did. And I've mm -hmm. been able to interview, like yourself, many fascinating, not only filmmakers, but creatives of all kinds. So um, I, I love that about podcasting, that all you need is a laptop and a good microphone uh, or computer, and mm -hmm. you can get started in a passion for the subject matter that you will be talking about. Yeah. Uh, and I love your blog. There's a downside in that I don't think people on the Internet read as much as they used to. 
I think they click. I think they scroll. I don't think they actually soak in text and read. And while I wish I could change that, I can't change the world. I don't have that kind of free time. So a podcast is kind of a nice middle ground of somebody getting to somebody who might not have the time or the interest to read, but still wants that information. It gets to them yes. in another way. So it's a great companion piece. It's like you're inside my head, Aaron. <laughs> I need you to stop that. That's but why I'm waiting for this. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, that's why I decided to go ahead and take the plunge and start the podcast. And also, too, I thought, well, what can I do, little old me, to separate myself from the pack? And one of the ways that I do that is that with the exception of the episodes that feature interviews, my podcast episodes are less than 10 minutes long. Mm -hmm. I start the podcast, hey, I have a short film or web series to share. I kind of give an overview of my thoughts on it and where they can go to watch it on my site. And then that's it. And that way people can get little bites. And I've been told that many of my listeners uh, like that. And so I'm glad I'm going to keep that format. They're like, hey, Rod, if I'm on my lunch break or I'm on the commute, I can listen to three or four of your episodes. No problem. They're short and sweet to the point. Fantastic. I, that has been such a question as to how long a podcast should be. And really, it's don't even worry about it. You will make the podcast you need to make and the people who want it will find it. Absolutely. And there are no hard and fast rules. You know, no. most I've noticed most podcasts are about from half an hour to an hour, two hours long. But there are really no rules. No. As you say, whatever fits your format, your interest, your capabilities, you can create a podcast. And what I love about it, you have the freedom to format it in any way that you choose. Indeed. And there's, I have used to join a lot of podcast support groups, and I'm still a member of a few of them. And I notice a very disturbing trend is that people will post a question and then the chosen few come in with the right answer. And that's like that's that's the antithesis of what a podcast should be. It's like you do what works for you. Your audience will find them. Right, right. You have a few people who I guess have dubbed themselves to be tastemakers of the medium. And mm -hmm. again, there are no rules. So I really kind of avoided joining podcast groups like that because of that specific reason because i've read articles where you have to have a certain setup you have to have a certain type of computer you mm -hmm. have to buy this certain mic and there's some people who don't have hundreds or thousands of dollars to start a podcast and they get discouraged or you don't have a journalism background or you don't have a background in broadcasting you don't need it all you need is passion and a love for it and if you can get your hands on the computer um computers now thank god are more affordable than they've ever been microphones are more affordable than they've ever been and you can find tutorials for free on youtube on how to begin a podcast so i, I encourage everyone to do that that's why i started off by asking how when you found podcasts because you and i are remembering those people who didn't have those people telling them this is the right way to do it the wrong they figured it out for themselves and they made some exactly. mistakes on the way, but yeah. hey, we love it because of it. Yeah, and I know you can attest to this, that we're always striving to improve. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as long as you care about your subject matter and what you're doing and you're passionate about it, again, I encourage everyone to just pursue it because you never, ever know what may happen. 
do you you told me when we talked last year that you saw a couple of my episodes on YouTube. Did you happen to watch the first episode with Jerry Bennett? You know, I'm gonna be honest with you, Aaron. If I did, I do not recall. And, and that's and I apologize. And that no, you don't have to apologize. But I'm making a point is that that was my first episode. It was recorded on two iPhones and edited on a 10-year-old Mac. See? And it did the job, and that's all that matters. And you did it. You got mm-hmm. it accomplished. And that's half the battle is just going out and doing it. And I know that it can be intimidating. And again, my biggest worry was hearing the sound of my own voice, but I got over that. And I'm used to it now. And the feedback that I've gotten is that People are pleased with the work that I'm doing, which that encourages me to be even better and to find even more content that I think our fellow science fiction and fantasy fans will enjoy. So it's been a win-win for me. And I have learned from other podcasters like yourself, like Tony Tolado, um, like so many others about how to improve my craft in doing this podcast. And I've really come to enjoy it. Fantastic. It's a half the battle and... As G.I. Joe told yes. us, the other half is knowing and lasers. So, <laughs> Yo, <hey>. Joe. <laughs> Rod, I want to let you go because I know you're a busy guy sure. and we've got a lot going on. But where can people find the rest of your stuff on the web? Anything you haven't mentioned up till now, where can we point oh, our, wow. our listeners to? Well, I tell you what, you can go to my website. It is the seventh, and that's with the number seven, the seventh matrix.com. And from there, you will find all of the projects, the short films and web series and other content that we feature on the site. And you will also find, if you go to Navigate to Podcast, you'll find an archive of all of the podcast episodes and show notes that I've done up to this current point. And like I said, I will try to link to anything we specifically talked about on the show in the show notes on AaronBosick.com. So I, we thank talked you. about a lot of great stuff, and we need to point people to that. <laughs> so thank you so yes. much, Rod. I would love to have you back anytime. Oh, I, I really enjoyed it, and thank you so much for having me. And sure, and you know you have an open invitation, too, to return to the podcast as well. Just give me a date and time, and we'll set something up. Sounds great, my friend. Talk soon. All right, take care. I would like to thank Rod for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. For the community building part of the show today, I want to talk about the web for a minute and the power of the web. Now, you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, which means that you probably most likely listen to it on some sort of podcast reader. And that's great. That's the way I like my podcast personally. But there are a lot of people who either don't know how to set one of those up or feel intimidated by it or don't want to commit to subscribing to a podcast on a podcast reader until they've listened to a few episodes. And for them, there are some great reasons to give them a web link and let them listen to the show in their browser before they go ahead and go through the rigmarole of a podcast reader. And there are at least three ways of listening to this show on the World Wide Web. First of all, we have a YouTube channel. You can get every episode of Hungry Trilobite on YouTube at the same time it's released on the podcast reader. And as an added bonus, if you want the video feed of as well, you're going to get that with each episode. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud, so you can listen to every episode on SoundCloud.com and send people links 
from soundcloud.com so they can listen to the show right in their browser. And the third place, if you don't need super new episodes, is the Internet Archive at archive.org. The Internet Archive is where I put every episode of the show, both audio and video, that is more than six months old. And I do this for a lot of reasons. One, I like the Internet Archive, and I like supporting them and giving them new content. And second, there are some concerns about YouTube's business model and their tendency to de-platform people for reasons that aren't very clear to anybody. And although I'm not super worried about that, this is my way of hedging my bets so that if something ever happens between YouTube and I, then I know that my video files already have another home somewhere else on the web. Don't forget, you can subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, YouTube, and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.